Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll explore the economic effects of the Build Back Better Act and the cost of making its temporary provisions permanent. Then we'll consider the economic feedback of federal spending on infrastructure, a subject that's front and center now with final passage last week of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Helping us sort through these issues is Kent Smetters, faculty director of the Penn Wharton budget model. Concord Coalition policy director, Tori Gorman, will join the conversation with Dr. Smetters and then later Steve Robinson, Concord's chief economist will join Tori and I for the infrastructure discussion. Dr. Smetters is a uh, professor in the Department of Business Economics and Public Policy at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and he's had extensive experience working in both the public and private sector uh, focused on uh, public finance. He served 17 months as a deputy assistant secretary for economic policy at the U.S. Department of Treasury, uh, also uh, had stints as an economist for the Congressional Budget Office uh, and as a consultant for the World Bank and the Urban Institute. Kent and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here. Well, uh, on the two big bills uh, making up the president's economic agenda, there's one down and one to go. Um, the physical infra infrastructure bill has now passed both the House and the Senate, and that uh, has bipartisan support. The other bill, which is a much bigger package of social spending and climate change, uh, still awaits House debate next week before moving on to the Senate, where changes are expected to be made there. Uh, so in other words, we still have a long ways to go on that one. And uh, with that in mind, we thought it would be a good time to check in with Kent Smithers about the work being done in this area by the Penn Wharton budget model, uh, which includes some recent policy briefs on the potential economic and budgetary effects of the Build Back Better framework uh, released by the White House. Um, uh, Ken, could you begin by just uh, giving us a little background about the, the mission of the Penn Wharton budget model? Sure, um, it, we were created a around the year 2015, have scaled up over time. I uh, have about 32 people spread between Philadelphia and Washington, DC. And really the need uh, that we serve is helping policymakers uh, understand the impact of their ideas on the budget, the economy and uh, distribution of resources um, while they're actually writing legislation. And the thing that we bring is that we have a fully integrated platform. So we're able to really think through not just how taxes impact the economy, but how spending also in, impacts the economy, such as you know, the impact of pre-K education on future productivity growth. Um, 
your uh, policy brief on the macroeconomic effects of the Build Back Better framework certainly has gotten a lot of attention. Could you walk us through some of the key findings? Sure. Uh, so the this focuses on the White House uh, version of the Build Back Better uh, reconciliation framework, um, and that the House has made some uh, modifications in uh, potentially in response to some of our revenue estimates and um, as well as some other uh, uh, changes. So the uh, White House uh, Build Back Better framework goes through uh, a whole list of kind of different spending programs, everything from child care, preschool, home care, clean energy, as you mentioned, ACA uh, subsidies, some Medicare hearing benefits, housing, and, and so forth. And so then what it does is it then uh, try, uh, finances some of that with various revenue initiatives, including the minimum tax and corporate book income, tax and stock repurchases, international tax changes, a surcharge on high income households and some other uh, changes, including some IRS funding uh, to try to get uh, a, a greater compliance. And so uh, essentially um, they put out an, an estimate of how much revenue they were gonna get from that. We went, did a line by line comparison and based on our uh, uh, framework that includes lots of interactions that's really tied to data uh, we estimated uh, a lower amount of revenue, about 1.5 trillion over 10 years, uh, whereas they were uh, closer to 1.9 trillion over 10 years. So the house has done some changes on the revenue uh, side as well as some of the spending side and will be releasing our analysis of the house version uh, probably within a day. Oh, good. Um, how are the uh, comparison with the, the spending? You're spending a model versus what the White House was assuming. Yeah, I mean, so most of the spending programs um, are dollar denominated already. So those are not going to change uh, a, a tremendous amount. It is true. Some of them are program uh, denominated. So that means they don't uh, necessarily have a, a specific price tag on uh, those. So what we do is we use um, our own model for some of those, some of the premium tax credit, which is some of these Affordable Care Act subsidies, the child tax credit, the earned income tax, uh, things like that. So if, if it's uh, spe specified as a program without a specific dollar amount, then we use our framework, uh, which is highly integrated. It gets all these interaction effects, uh, sometimes they are very first order. And so we capture that from our framework. And then if, uh, they are dollar denominated, obviously, that's just dollars and there's no disagreement on those. And so the spending side is not really, uh, at least as the law as written, uh, there's not a huge disagreement on, uh, on that part. I mean, there is some disagreement in terms of, you know, uh, kind of smaller things, but in terms of, uh, you know, we estimate the spending to be about uh, 1.87 trillion as written. Um, of course, what is um, this issue with reconciliation bills um, is that they often are uh, a, a trying to target a deficit um, total over 10 years uh, driven by the bird rule, which is specific to these reconciliation bills. 
And so uh, as re one way of targeting that, we saw this also during the Tax cut, Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, is that certain programs will be made temporary uh, for a couple of years in order to hit that 10-year target. So we also do what we call an illustrative uh, permanent spending scenario, which says suppose that those programs do not um, suspend, that is that they are renewed um, throughout the budget window. And in that case, the cost uh, is slightly more than doubles. It goes from our estimate of 1.87 uh, trillion in spending over 10 years for the House, uh, I'm sorry, the White House version uh, of the legislation as written to about 4.2 trillion um, under this illustrative alternative where all the spending is made permanent uh, uh, during the 10 year horizon. And so just to be very clear, our official score um, is of legislation as written, but it's not surprising a lot of policymakers want to know what the price tag may be if in fact um, the spending programs were in fact not made temporary, but were made permanent eventually. One of the interesting things about uh, the Penn Wharton uh, model results with respect to the White House drafts of the, of the Build Back Better agenda uh, and this, and then I mean the ones that uh, that, that allows certain provisions to expire, is that from uh, a, an economy-wide uh, look, it actually subtracts modestly from future economic growth. Specifically, um, hourly wages would grow under the Build Back Better bill, um, but hours worked would fall and and by a greater amount. Um, are there targeted provisions within? the White House Build Back Better agenda that lead to that result? Or is that purely just an artifact of the way the bill is financed, which is with debt, and then the drag that's associated with, with more debt on the economy and the impact on the interest, on interest yeah, rates? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And this, how to break it down is the financing mechanism and is important here. And the, um, the biggest impact on GDP, as you pointed out over time, the, for the bill as written, not for the scenario where the spending is made permanent, uh, it is uh, the GDP we project by 2031 will be about 0.1%. So one-tenth of 1% uh, smaller, and then you know a little bit smaller decrease by 2040 and back to about uh, uh, one-tenth of 1% decline by 2050. Uh, uh, and so there's competing things going on there. Um, on one hand, you have increases in taxes that do create economic distortions. They can create in this, uh, or reallocate capital and uh, disincentivize a certain economic activity. You do have the debt effect also happening. That's smaller in this particular scenario, simply because while the debt does go up about uh, 2% relative to what it what otherwise would have been by 2050, and it has some fiscal drag, even at low interest rates, it will have some, some fiscal drag. It, the main um, economic impact are the tax changes themselves. Um, but what's offsetting that, like if we had no impact of spending on productivity, then the GDP effects would be even more negative. Uh, what's offsetting most of it is the fact that we actually have a very detailed modeling of how some of these spending programs will actually increase um, uh, GDP and labor force participation and so forth. So for example, some of the child tax credits uh, do free up uh, typically secondary earners, typically uh, uh, women in the household to go back to the labor market, free up some hours there. So even though the net hours do go down, 
um, they actually get, they would be going down even more without that offset to things like the child tax credit and some of the other uh, impacts. We have pre-K education has some impact. It, it actually takes a long time for that to work through the system mm -hmm. uh, because of kids uh, being in kin pre-kindergarten right now. It takes a couple of decades for you to see those effects over time. Uh, but nonetheless, all those things do have uh, a positive impacts on productivity over time. And then you, some of the infrastructure things are actually in this bill and not in the other legislation that was recently passed uh, also have uh, some, some impact. And so we really detailed model these spending things, both at the micro level, where we go right down to the individual types of households impact on them, uh, including some houses already would have sent their kids to pre-K. And so we, we actually see that in the data. Some households don't really need a child tax credit in order for the uh, for mom to go back to the labor force. And we actually see that and have that in detail. And then the other things have these more macro productivity effects. So for the most part, as written, it's, it's mostly uh, a wash in terms of economic performance. And if those, some of those provisions are made permanent, like the child tax credit, the earned income tax credit, uh, uh, the, the healthcare premium tax credit for Obamacare, the uh, universal pre-K childcare provisions, if all those things are made permanent, what does your model say to us about the economic effects of this bill in general on the economy? Yeah, that the permanent structure is where you get much higher costs because, and you identified some of those drivers, the child tax credit being um, a significant one. So the, as written, the child tax credit would cost about $95 billion over 10 years because it's mainly an extension for one year. Um, if you extended it over 10 years, though, the child tax credit alone costs about $1.8 trillion. Uh, and that's where you see, um, and, and a lot of that is because it will come in 2026, uh, the current law child tax credit actually goes down because of the sunset that, uh, mm -hmm. that happened in the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So there's even a bigger gap at that point to make up in order to get back to the level uh, that is uh, 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 being trying to achieve for 2022, if we want to stretch that forward. So the macro effects are going to be um, uh, 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 more negative in the sense that uh, now government debt and stuff going up about 2% uh, relative to the baseline that is otherwise, were, otherwise would have been in 2050. So in our baseline, government debt is still going up, but relative where otherwise would have been, the as written law says that it's going to go up by, we project it go up by uh, 2% relative to the increase that already would have happened under current law. Uh, instead, under this uh, alternative scenario where that spending is made permanent, it, it goes up by uh, 25%. So now all of a sudden that debt effect does become more important um, uh, over time. And so we then project that GDP would fall by about a little, little shy of 3% by, by 2050. Now that you bring a, a, up an interesting uh, question, which is, uh, in 2017, Republicans passed a major tax bill. The individual provisions in that tax bill sunset in 2025. Democrats built off of some of those provisions in their COVID emergency relief bill that they passed earlier this year and enhanced some of those tax cuts, earned income tax credit, child tax credit. Um, how hard is it to model some of those, those provisions moving forward when you know in 2025, the tax regime that you're 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 talking about today, essentially the the baseline falls out, the bottom falls out, right? In 2025, right. the tax structure that exists today 
goes away. So how hard is it to take individual tax provisions like the child tax credit and, and, and model those forward? I, I mean, do you have to, do, I, I imagine you're, you're having to make some, I don't know, how do you do it actually? Yeah. I mean, I mean actually, to avoid getting too in the weeds here, yeah. I'm just really curious about how you isolate a certain provision when the whole regime is changing in 2025. Yeah, and that's what the modeling has to do. <laughs> but it's, it's actually uh, fairly simple in one dimension. If we look at the law as written, um, then, and for the most part, like if we're talking outside of reconciliation, a standalone bill, you know, scorekeepers, whether it's CBO, JCT, or ourselves, uh, you know, we have different approaches, but nonetheless, we all kind of agree it's not our job to decide how legislation will evolve in the future. We're going to take it as written and we will do the analysis against that. So uh, it is true that, you know, uh, whereas CBO and JCT are more kind of top down in their approach, our, ours is much more bottom up in, in approach. As a result of that, we have to run all these what's called micro simulation and overlapping generation models and, and, and so forth to try to capture all those effects. But we actually do that for what we call current law. So the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is current law. The expiration will happen under current law. And so then we do everything relative to that. Back over the summer, you, you had an issue brief that looked at uh, spending on pre-K and yes. child subsidies. Uh, and I, I thought that interest that that uh, analysis was really very interesting. It showed that they both could have um, very positive effects, both on labor force participation in later years and in um, and in productivity, right. uh, which are two things that we that you know we identified in our fiscally responsible economic mm. growth pro uh, project from a couple of years ago. Yes, uh, that you're familiar with. That those are two things that we need to. To do so, it seems to score on those points. But you made a couple of uh, interesting uh, uh, observations in that. One is that um, it, it, like anything else, if it's all deficit finance, you get a uh, reduction in, in the benefit. But secondly, what I thought was interesting is that it actually works better um, or more bang for the buck anyway and are targeted if the programs are targeted yes. rather than a universal basis. Uh, and I thought that was... Interesting. Could you kind of walk through why the, the targeting may, in this case, actually be more effective than universal? Yes. And it's there's a classic trade-off between targeting. On one hand, targeting means you spend less money. So uh, that means less taxes that have to increase at either today or in the future to deal with that increased spending. Um, at, at the same time, this is the subtle point that people don't understand. In order to target, that means you have to have some phase-out range where that benefit is no longer available to the household. That phase out range then creates economic effects because people will then uh, optimize in, in response to that. And if what economists call, it, it creates an effective marginal tax rate. So if you were gonna lose a dollar on program spending for every $2 that you make in more income, that's a 50% tax on your additional $2 of income. And so um, there's that classic kind of trade-off. In this case, the main effect is that if you actually target, what happens is that you're typically getting true additional spending for that program. Whereas universal is often paying for households who otherwise would have already sent their kids to pre-K uh, programs. So we drill right down into the into the kind of the micro data and universal 
means that some households who are already sending their kids to pre-K, um, they would then get paid uh, for, in order to, to do that. That is, they no longer have to use their own money uh, for that purpose. And so that's actually not expanding the access to pre-K, but it is creating more need to use taxes or deficits to finance that benefit. Um, it, whereas when it comes to means tested, you're more isolating households who otherwise wouldn't have sent their kids already to a pre-K. And that's what's the, that's the main driver in this case. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Kent Smethers, the director of the Penn Wharton budget model. We're discussing the economic and budgetary effects of the Build Back Better framework. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Kent Smithers, the director of the Penn Wharton budget model. We're discussing the economic and uh, budgetary effects of the Build Back Better framework. Yeah, let me ask you, I feel like we've got a, a, a very interesting public policy, a public finance experiment playing out in real time in that in 2017, Republicans passed a pretty significant $2 trillion approximately tax cut bill that was deficit financed. And here we are in yeah. 2021 talking about a, a spending program that's largely deficit finance. When it comes to uh, evaluating the economic impact of these two different approaches to stimulating uh, an economy. Uh, what does your model tell users or tell, tell people who read about uh, you know, public policy implications about how much weight uh, the way a policy program is financed contributes or detracts from, from the economic benefit? So yeah. For example, would you expect, you know, if a debt financed uh, public spending program isn't expected to add much to the economy. Would you expect the same result from a tax plan that is deficit financed? Does that do they oh, yeah. relate to each other? No, it's, uh, sure. They and they are different because you know um, more kind of Wall Street models would treat those very similarly. We uh, model this in, in much more detail, and so I think uh, yes, there are some differences. You can actually have some spending programs. We just talked about. Uh, child uh, tax credit and you know pre-K education. What we actually show is that that can, in some ways, pay for itself even under deficit financing through these productivity effects over time. Uh, and some tax cuts can actually do that, but other tax cuts cannot do that. Most tax cuts cannot do that. So I think it was a couple of things when we think about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The first one was that first uh, uh, the two trillion dollar number. You know, came from our analysis at the time, but the official score was 1.5 trillion. And we said, no, we think it's $2 trillion. And then in early 2018, the official scorekeepers did a revision, uh, partly due to the economic forecast changes and some technical changes. And they came up to the $2 trillion number. So I think having this integrated framework is helpful in um, really uh, disentangling a lot of these pieces. But it all comes down to the, the particulars. So it's not really a general rule does deficit financing of spending more likely to pay for itself or deficit financing of uh, taxes more likely to pay for it itself. The old days used to be, you can maybe do that in the tax side, but we believe the concept of so-called dynamic scoring should be applied to both taxes and spending. We have other analysis on our website that showed, for example, universal healthcare or sometimes called Medicare for all, 
Um, it all comes down to how you finance it. And in particular, um, even if you don't deficit finance it, if you actually have what we call payroll tax financing, that can slow economic growth over time. But if you have what we call premium financing, which is uh, it seems subtle, but it is different, you can actually uh, have positive economic growth over time while, while in fact uh, um, providing universal health care. And uh, that also increases productivity because uh, the population is healthier. And so um, it, the details, you know, the, they say the devil in the details is, is really true in this type of framework. Putting on your... Um... Medicare uh, an analyst hat. Um, you know, one of the things that is um, being debated is, a, is an expansion of Medicare uh, to include new benefits for dental and vision and, and, uh, and hearing. And um, I wonder what you think about, um, you know, you said it, uh, with things, it depends on how they're financed, but a lot of, you know, Medicare is like Social Security has a quote unquote, self-financing tradition where people pay premiums. So you would think that it might be appropriate if to, to add benefits like those, that there'd be a, maybe an increase in the premium since after all, Medicare Part A has already got a sufficient, uh, you know, a large deficit in facing trust fund insolvency in 2026. So um, this, is this isn't necessarily a Penn Wharton question, but, but right. sort of more of a a Medicare policy question is whether the addition of new benefits like that ought to be accompanied by Medicare specific um, contributions or savings. Yeah, so most of Medicare, as you pointed out, Social Security is almost all payroll tax financed. And yes, there are you know uh, taxes on benefits for some uh, earners that then get plowed back into the Social Security Trust Fund, but for the most part, it's payroll tax finance. Medicare has always been the splitsies between some payroll and general revenue, and with more general revenue becoming uh, a, a bigger share of revenue uh, into Medicare over time. Um, it, what's certainly different about this version, the White House version that include hearing benefits uh, relative to previous versions that were being uh, discussed uh, on the Senate side uh, is that uh, the eligibility age in this version of, of the Better Back uh, Build Back Better plan, it's a bit of a tongue twister, um, has not been changed from age 65 to 60. Instead, most of the discussions around hearing and uh, uh, vision benefits. Um, and so uh, if you, in fact, reduce the age of eligibility, that's where we found in previous analysis. Uh, uh, that we did for uh, on the Senate side more probably two months ago, um, that had a much bigger impact because that also uh, reduced people's need to save for retirement. Uh, and uh, it, it, it also led to a larger reduction in capital stock. So, you know, the hearing, uh, we estimate, um, since that's the one in, that's actually in the White House version, uh, we, we estimate that it would be a, um, about $89 um, uh, billion dollars o o over 10 years. And what is, does that come from the Part B? Or no, that would be a, a Part A expense, <clears throat> I guess. It would. I, and so I'd have to go back and figure out you know, exactly what sections they're, they're modifying. I think I'm almost positive it would be a Part A, but 
Um, from our perspective, it's less important kind of exactly what attaches. Right. I was just thinking of the trust fund. It's oh, going to have an impact on solvency, though. That'll be a headline grabbing. Yeah. 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 What about the, uh, while we're on that subject, the um, uh, ability of Medicare to negotiate drug prices? Um, yes. That's right. And that will be coming because uh, there were some modifications there on the House side uh, uh, for that one. Um, and so uh, we've done analysis actually several months ago on that and how that may actually impact. And, you know, the number, it all comes down to the assumptions. Some are as large as you know, a couple hundred billion dollars over 10 years that could be saved. Um, some even potentially even larger than that. The issue there um, when it comes to modeling is that we can kind of do this conventional analysis to figure out the impact. Uh, what, one of the things that we're uh, always doing more and more work on is to ask ourselves, okay, what happens then to uh, if the biggest buyer of uh, prescri pres prescription drugs uh, now has price caps, will that, how does that potentially impact innovation in uh, uh, pharmaceuticals over time, which are a very risky enterprise. Um, and so, you know, will that impact innovation in those areas? And that is something that is, has received very little attention in the economics literature so far and something that we're trying to get, our, get a better handle around over time. Is there, uh, you know, you've been uh, doing this work and uh, I'm, just, I'm just wondering, is there, is there something that, that you would say to policymakers as they go into this build back better debate in the, in the coming weeks? I mean, it, um, sort of a uh, lessons that, that they should keep in mind. I know you don't make policy recommendations at, right. uh, at Penn Wharton one way or the other, but I don't know, pitfalls or things that could move things positively or negatively in terms of the economic feedback. Sure. I mean, and it, just to be clear, you know, we, we, we don't think GDP is the only measure that people should be caring about. We actually um, have built out new measures of how, of how to think through welfare impacts uh, uh, and so forth. But nonetheless, um, you know, the things that, uh, the big lessons that we've learned over the last couple of months is more on the healthcare side. And that is, if you reduce the age of eligibility for like Medicare, that had, actually has uh, that, that actually had the biggest impact in some of the earliest versions of, uh, of plans that people had thought about um, for kind of social side uh, spending. Um, and so a, a changing that age of eligibility does have a big impact on just not only cost, but you know, how much people are saving for their future that impacts the capital stock, even with international capital flows. I would say more generally, is that you know policymakers? I'd really encourage them to understand a bit about what are the differences between the frameworks. You know what we're doing, what uh, CBO and JCT do, and tr really try to understand. You know that you know it's it, it really is. We view ourselves as all kind of working on this together to try to get the best estimates and so forth. Uh, but to really you know put a, put away kind of all the sideshow dogma that happens in when people like your numbers or don't like your numbers and just really try to understand it, uh, you know, uh, what are the assumptions, what's driving things and, uh, you know, try to get uh, educated on, uh, on those frameworks because they, I think we all have something, you know, useful to be saying here. 
Yeah, well, I, I, I think that the Penn Wharton model is really contributing to that. Uh, and it, um, it performs a very Im important function. Um, and uh, just for the record, we like your numbers, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we'd respect them even if we didn't like the numbers that we saw because uh, a lot of great work goes into it. Um, I think that that's all the time we have uh, for this segment, but uh, Kent, I wanna thank you for joining us today and for all the great work of the uh, Penn Wharton budget model. Uh, we'll be right back uh, right after these short messages. Thank you. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, Tori Gorman and I are now joined by Concord's chief economist, Steve Robinson. And uh, you've heard of Infrastructure Week. Well, this is infrastructure segment on Facing the Future. <laughs> the, uh, the Congress finally passed a big infrastructure bill last week. And one of the, uh, one of the interesting questions that comes up about that is, you know, how much of a bang for the buck does this give you? Uh, how much of a jolt to the economy would it be either, uh, you know, primarily on the long term, because that's what they're trying to do here is grow the economy over the long term. Um, we were talking to Kent Smetters of uh, the Penn Wharton Institute uh, earlier in the show. And Tori, I guess Penn Wharton has done some work on infrastructure as well. Uh, yeah, they put out a report earlier this summer looking at the macroeconomic effects of the of the bipartisan infrastructure spending package, and um, lo and behold, didn't find there to be much of an economic impact either in the short term or in the long term. Basically, the impact on GDP is zero. Uh, Steve, uh, you uh, did an issue brief for us earlier this year, not on the specifics of, uh, of, a, of a particular bill, but just on this feedback effect. Is uh, what you found consistent with Penn Wharton? Uh, yes, yes and no, I guess. I mean, they, they did a slightly different exercise. Uh, the way their model works is essentially they look at if, if the government borrows 500 billion or a trillion dollars and goes out and spends the money on infrastructure, uh, arguably that has some positive effect. Uh, but at the same time, when the government goes into the, into the private market uh, and borrows money, and of course, when you're building infrastructure, not only are you borrowing money, you're also borrowing resources. You're borrowing the, the truck drivers and the equipment and the machinery and all of the things that go involved, that they go into uh, building infrastructure. And so there's this notion of what's called crowding out. And crowding out can occur in the financial markets where they're borrowing money and potentially driving up interest rates. Crowding out can also occur in the physical markets for goods and services. In this case, the, 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 uh, the labor and the resources that are needed to build infrastructure. And so essentially what Penn Wharton said was that if the government goes out and borrows a trillion, they're gonna push up interest rates and private investment will go down. If they go out and borrow a trillion dollars and spend it on construction, they're gonna be borrowing workers and resources away from the private sector. So private investment is gonna go down. And so essentially they said it's a wash, that, that the one uh, spending offsets the other spending. And so the net effect on the economy is roughly zero. Uh, and I, I think that as a first approximation, that's probably about right. What I did was slightly different. Uh, there have in the past been various advocates who say, you know, infrastructure is so wonderful, you know, it'll virtually pay for itself. 
And so what I did is I said, okay, well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume that we go out and spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure and there is no crowding out. There's no, no effect on financial markets. There's no effect on you know, labor and capital resources that all of it just somehow appears magically out of thin air and it goes into building infrastructure. And so the, the problem, trillion dollars sounds like a lot of money, but you have to realize that the physical stock of, of resources, capital, buildings, of plant and equipment, machines, roads, all the things that exist, physical capital that exists in our economy is literally tens of trillions of dollars. And so when you add a trillion dollars to that total, it's very, very small marginal effect. And essentially what my results show uh, is that, that the trillion dollars would add at, at the end of the 10 years, uh, it would add about a half a percent to GDP uh, it might add about 100,000 jobs, uh, which is, you know, that's not, not, not insignificant. But the notion that spending a trillion dollars to add a half a percent of GDP and create 100,000 jobs, that feedback effect is not big enough to actually pay for itself. And primarily that's true because if, if you build infrastructure, it's not a one-time investment. You can't just build a road and, build a road and go away the road has to be maintained and, and repaired. And, you know, and so there's an ongoing cost, uh, what, what's referred to as economic depreciation. So as physical goods wear out over time, you need to repair and replace them. And so once you build the trillion dollars in infrastructure, you have to maintain it. And the cost of doing that would be ongoing and that offsets some of the benefits. So there's costs and benefits of doing this. And essentially my, my you know, conclusion was is that no, there's really no plausible way to assume that infrastructure would actually pay for itself. Yeah, so it's something that the uh, government can do and should do to uh, help the economy, but it's not a, a magic bullet to a uh, uh, you know trillion dollar deficit or two trillion dollar deficit. Where uh, you've very depressing. This is another magic uh, magic solution that uh, doesn't work out to be a magic solution. Even if it's a good thing to do, it doesn't uh, necessarily pay for itself. Um, let's let's look ahead uh, a little bit. Uh, the uh, House and Senate are taking a break this week, but they're going to come back, and it's a promise that the House is going to take up this Build Back Better bill the week of November 15th, and uh, and then send it over to the Senate. Um, I guess is a, we're pretty much set with the House bill. Yeah, I don't think the House bill, the House bill is not going to change. I don't think it's going to change. Um, the general agreement reached between moderates and progressives in the House Democratic Party uh, last week is that uh, the progressives uh, agreed to vote on the infrastructure bill last week and let that go to the president's desk as long as the, the moderates agreed to go along with passage of the Build Back Better agenda reconciliation bill when that comes to the floor next week. Um, presuming, and then, then the moderates said, as long as we have some assurances from the Congressional Budget Office that the budgetary contours of that reconciliation bill, that Build Back Better agenda, uh, are in line with what the White House has promised and, and, and marketed. So, and I, and I think CBO will be able to provide some sort of top line analysis that says, in general, yes, we'll, we'll see what they say, but I think, you know, they're not, the, the Democrats aren't asking for a, a full on formal line by line CBO score. So I, I think that CBO will, will, would be able 
to 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 meet that request. I, we'll we'll see, but it, I think it's within the realm of possibility. And then if and when that if, that the Senate, or excuse me, if and when the House does take that vote on the Build Back Better reconciliation bill, that gets sent to the Senate, and the then the Senate gets to work its will on the reconciliation bill. So we'll 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 see what transpires there. What are some of the key sticking points that uh, could come up from the bill that's going to come out of the House to the bill that will to, to where the Senate takes it up? Yeah, oh, <laughs> um, I think there are a, a, a lot of fingerprints everywhere, and, and some of them are member driven and some of them are, are judges driven by the, the nature of, of Senate rules and passing legislation via reconciliation. But I think you should if close watchers of the Senate should expect to see some changes in the way the bill is financed. Senator Wyden, for example, has some alternative ideas about how the bill should be financed. Um, I, I, I believe that uh, Bernie Sanders will have some, in, uh, some input on the solution, if you will, for the state and local tax deduction, the SALT deduction. He'll have some input there. He might have something to say about Medicare benefits. Um, other senators like uh, Patty Murray and... Um, Kristen Gillibrand from uh, New York might have something to say about paid family leave. Uh, the parliamentarian will probably have something to say about immigration and may also have something to say about paid family leave. Um, so I, I think there are a number of things that are up in the air in the Senate. And then, of course, if it passes the Senate, when they pass their, their thing, then it's got to go back to the House. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think this will be the last time the House sees the Build Back Better reconciliation bill. I think when it goes to the Senate, there will be some changes made. Um, and then, the, the, of course, you know, in order for a bill to get sent to the president, if you go back to your schoolhouse rock days of I'm just a bill, well, I'm only a bill. Yeah, both <laughs> the House and the Senate have to pass identical legislation before it gets sent to the president. So if the Senate makes changes, then that reconciliation bill, that Build Back Better agenda is going to have to go back to the House where it'll be voted on again. Uh, Steve, I'm not going to ask you to do some singing and uh, match, uh, match, <laughs> well, match. Yeah, in that regard, this is the greatest hits on WKXL. <laughs> um, Steve, there was a, a very buoyant uh, jobs report that, uh, that came out uh, in the midst of all of this legislative activity. Uh, showed, uh, you know, a very positive uh, job growth. It, does, does it seem to you uh, that the economy is, um, is, uh, is, is picking up steam in the post-pandemic environment? And uh, as you answer that, uh, what are some of the, uh, the downsides of that, specifically like inflation? Well, yeah, it's, it's really hard to tell. Um... There's just so much uncertainty uh, because of the, of the virus. I mean, they're now talking about opening up uh, the U.S. to international travels. Um, you know, we could see another spike in COVID cases and things start getting to shut down again. I mean, it just, I'm not saying in the next month or two, but by, you know, by, by next year. So, I mean, this, this roller coaster ride of economic recovery and concern about COVID, I think, could continue. Um, and so, you know, that has me somewhat concerned because as you just mentioned, you know, inflation has reared its head and, and we've seen, you know, a string of 5% inflation uh, reports for the last several months. And if, you know, the supply chain bottlenecks continue to, to hold things up, um, you know, energy production is still a, a question mark. 
So, you know, you, you could see inflation. And of course, if, if that continues, it's going to eventually trickle into the, to the bond market and interest rates are going to rise. Um, you know, it, there, in my view, is so much uncertainty. And in terms of the labor market, yeah, I mean, people are focusing on, you know, jobs, uh, the number of jobs. But, you know, you have to remember that we lost, um, I, if I recall, the number was around 8 million jobs, I think, at, at the you know, first, second quarter of, of last year. And we still, you know, as, as the population grows and the jobs come back, but if the population is growing faster than the jobs are coming back, if you look at what's called the employment population ratio, the number of people employed relative to the working age population, we're still below the level it was pre-pandemic. So, you know, although unemployment has come down, a lot of that is because people have dropped out of the labor market. Uh, and so from a pure labor market employment perspective, there are fewer people working now than there were relative to the population back at, at the beginning of, of 2020, uh, 2020. Uh, and so, you know, I, I still think there's, there's a big question mark uh, going forward. Well, uh, we'll have to leave that question mark hanging there for our listeners, and we'll get back to it uh, next week. That's all the time we have uh, for this week's show. I want to thank Kent Smetters of the Penn Wharton Budget Model for joining us. Tori and Steve, uh, good to see you both. And uh, to our listeners, uh, tune in again next week. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'll be back with another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>